Welcome back to the motherfucking War Horse Podcast, Episode 6, Season 2. It's been a long time, so I apologize for the, to, the, to the avid War Horse absorbers, subscribers. Uh, your support is much appreciated in this time of dire and absolute madness. It has enveloped not only myself, but certainly yourself, likely, and everyone we know. Um, This episode is going to feature, well, first of all, this episode I am coming to you from a brand new super secure location, a a bombed out garage shop, once again in the absolute middle of nowhere, Uh, fetid in ways that I, I, I could only describe as um, squalid, apocalyptic, maybe a bit strong. However, you can hear behind you, uh, once again, the bird language, the green language. And I take this as a sign that this will be the episode that we actually get into um, this portal into the writer's Um, point of view with respect to word choice, etymology, the slipperiness, the inherent and uh, insidious, unavoidable, highly disturbing Wittgensteinian uh, slipperiness at the base of pretty much every word. That will be set uh, four or so. This episode will feature a discussion with a new friend to the Warhorse podcast named John J. Stancliffe. If you're not aware of John J., um, get yourself over to Amazon and check out his book. It is called Fedbook. And I've read it, and it's quite good for for a very young man. I'll read you the the blurb here from Goodreads. Fedbook, John J. Stancliffe, who is Soldier Crane, a privately contracted informant, arrives at a small-town liberal arts university in the high desert of Wyoming. His job? Observe and report on a group of nihilist extremists calling themselves the Crusaders. If only the company paid him a little more. As the line between, quote, terrorist and, quote, buddy blurs, powerful and sinister forces descend upon the town, intent on building a stage for an act of violent political theater. The informant must decide which he values, his life 
for his soul. Not exactly. Um, here is a review, a five-star review. It's all five-star reviews. I would give it a five-star review myself, though I have not. Even though I, I beg and uh, borrow and steal to get the reviews for my own shit, I'm, I think I did leave one, actually, Mr. Stancliffe, for you on Amazon, though I'd, I'll go and double-check. Um, but yeah, you really want them as an author, um, an independent author in particular. You notice that the the mouthpiece NGO well-paid shills, they don't really care. I'm sure that those ratings are flooded with bots and, uh, you know, probably in conjunction with Goodreads and Amazon, which themselves, I believe, are one, you know, uh, gatekeeping entity at this point. So this review says, balances absurdity, reality, innocence, corruption, faith, and hilarity. Went into it completely blind after stumbling upon it rambly, ram randomly, and there are very few books in recent memory I've enjoyed as much. In fact, I finally set up a Goodreads account for the sole purpose of writing this. So what I like about this book are um, the ambition and... Uh, quite skilled use of a variety of narrative frames and um, what would I call it? The, the sort of narrative, uh, the, con the conceptual narrative bubble in which the whole thing is encased and uh, the devices used are, are quite ingenious and I mean thought provoking. Like I've, I've thought of them over and over myself um, and may have to steal a bit unless Mr. Uh, Stancliffe can stop me. So we get into, in this discussion, you know, you get two novelists together and they're just basically going to foam at the mouth, which is what we mo mostly did. I think Mr. Stancliffe... Um, held his tether, you know, to, um, to coherency a little bit better than myself, but, um, hopefully you enjoy it. And I do recommend the book. I'm going to link in the show notes. His, his sub stack is Nineveh 20 XX. That's N I N E V E H 20 XX. Um, John Jay is an Orthodox fellow such as myself, and so he, he's also, a, you know, a quote convert, though I don't think either of us were really converting from, from something else so much as finding the most beautifully decorated port in the storm, perhaps, I don't know. Um, Okay, so we'll, we'll cut to that in just a moment. Further update on um, Abstract Operator. Right now, it is out to the, the big quote beta readers. These are people, these are, this is a specific type of person. You can't actually send the book at that stage to 
like your friends that you go and um, lick toads with or whatever. Um, it needs to go to people that are familiar with, with your work, familiar with, it used to be like the genre now in the uh, ever disintegrating cultural landscape we find ourselves in. You know, it's more like, I guess, you know, online, off, whatever, like metaphysical niche or something. So it's, and this has made this choice and everything else about this book um, in terms of rollout and presentation, the way it reads, will will be made unique, if not, um, I don't think it's a difficult book. And I actually think it may have greater reach than King of Dogs, but the choices you make along the way end up playing a bigger role than you think, whether that's your editor or your cover or what have you. But the the publishing piece of it should go fairly quickly. There's a there's a lot of groundwork to lay. There is still at least another pass through. I would I'm expecting more. You kind of send it out. You got to get you got to get to that point where um, you both believe and do not believe. And that that's not that it, I say that and uh, you don't know how you get there. You just keep trying and keep trying until you're you're sufficiently you've been driven sufficiently mad that um, but also done enough battle with the madness that you feel like all right that that's probably that's probably it so this was nine full drafts from the first I mean the first one was such dog shit that I I had a moment of a come to Jesus moment where I I needed to think like as a as a father and a husband and and you know a guy with not um infinite time on his hands is this really something that i need to be fucking doing and uh that kind of uncertainty it ultimately again this is one of those things that there is no mentor out there there's no coach there's no real editors anymore even for big biggest players um and the biggest players are of course are working in in quote safe spaces so this type of process is completely occasionally maybe one or two of them run into it i'm not saying there there isn't a, a medium ground between the absolute unknown um you know uh cult writer such as myself um and somebody somewhat higher up the the mainstream consensus you know food chain there's a lot of shades and variety now much more than there there probably ever was you'll see i'm interested to see if uh if my my readers are just like holy shit dude you need to um you need to retire or um you know they they're sufficiently wowed so that's the that's the state probably not going to be probably not going to hit that um 
that early summer mark. But um, that's okay. There was one other thing to drop into this intro. Um, check my time here. Yeah. So we'll call it good there and um, jump into this discussion with Mr. Stancliffe. I will meet you subscribers on the far side. If you have questions, if you, uh, if you wish to berate me for taking so much time between Warhorse episodes, I totally understand. That's why DMs, emails, and whatnot are, are wide open. Um, last note on the book, I think, is there's basically no money to edit. There's, there's just not. Um, you know, um, pardon me. I have two young kids. This podcast makes literally, um, I mean, it, it doesn't really even pay for the cost of the, um, you know, the hosting services and whatnot. For a while it did inflation. The first of the year cut the total subscribers, you know, down to almost nothing. So I am, I will have to see what comes back after um, what I hear from the readers because I cannot responsibly, you know, King of Dogs was something like, it, it was two pass-throughs with the best in the world and that was, and that was, and it was, all of 10 all of 10 grand included in that was more or less um an mfa everything that i might have picked up that would have been a value was given to me in that and a, a friendship was was built i learned a lot and at that particular point in time with that particular book there was no fucking way that I could get out on the outside of it to see if it was going to hold up. This book is much different. It's um, it's neither fiction nor nonfiction. I'm not going to categorize it. I'm not going to do anything like that in terms of submission to the compartments and categories. Fuck them. They're not paying me anyway, so why do I care? Um, I think we've talked about before, it is a manual. It is a manual for inner survival, a speculative manual for inner survival. Which brings up the next question, who could really edit that? I'm not sure. There's somebody out there. And um, in terms of like proofreading, you know, style, voice, sentence structure, these things, um, I, I tend to not place them in the category of substance, what is called substantive editing. It's more, it's not, it's neither, it's not really even, I guess it would be more like line editing. Um, 
so that you, I think that what I'm going to go on is I'm going to gauge that decision based off of the feedback from the beta readers. And um, I will post up some stuff to Patreon in the very near future so anyone interested can check it out. I need to personally turn the, you know, there's no benefit to sitting here because oftentimes this podcast will t- I'll put out two or three hours. There have been in the early days some where I could just sit down and verbally dump and then just no, zero editing, drop it in. But effectively, what that was was me working out all of the ideas for the manual. So the Warhorse project, the secret that I never told you about, was, and the speculative nature of it was, it was kind of an exercise in um, trying to understand how does the daemon speak through me. I would, I would sit down on the Warhorse. I would try and clear my mind. Usually I would do it after working out. I would get a beverage. I stuck to a specific routine, which is, you know, this is itself is in the manual. And this was all an experiment to try and understand what sorts of ad hoc psychological and physical stabilization mechanisms I can invent for myself in a tough spot while while producing because what we really rely on for that is a paycheck is Monday through Sunday or you know church uh, dinner times if all of this is disrupted and you cannot react to that forget about losing your medications forget about not having enough ammo forget about the price of gold or you know your buddies that didn't quite make it into the manor bund or whatever sort of highfalutin fantastical shit all or none of that may apply but with certainty it would seem to me that the what brian mckenzie and emily hightower call you know harnessing the stress molecule is going to be done with this particular what I'm calling a practice in, in mind. It, is exce- it, it itself is necessarily spontaneous. So in this way, you're forcing imagination with some, now the stakes in making a podcast are pretty fucking minimal, obviously. But the stakes, uh, the trade-off for me at that time and this time still, they're somewhat substantial. I'm trading 10 hours or whatever sometimes um, some of these you know sets whether it's two hours or a half hour that will some of them have taken 10 of late attempts you know I will record something I will record two or three hours and then think about it and I hate it so I delete it think about it further and then go now again, at the beginning, I was forcing myself into a position where I would sit, collect my thoughts, dredge them up, because in the way that we don't really think, but these things, they percolate up there as these golden bubbles arising out of the, the sub or unconscious or the emotional ocean or 
below the trauma loop, whatever you want to think of it. It does not matter your fucking conception. We're all wrong about it. But the fact is that choosing not to manage whatever it is is going to fuck you up. And choosing to talk about what an alpha you are when you know your grift or your scheme is just mostly repeating some shit that you just grabbed off of fucking Wikipedia or oh well I'm if you have really good taste you're gonna steal from you know the classics and do these like dump threads which you also probably cribbed from fucking Wikipedia in survival you you may have some of those resources available to you depending on what the situation is survival does not in any fucking way uh, limit you to the woods and, you know, a lost hiker scenario. Today, 99 out of 100 times, it's something else. And it also doesn't limit you to, you know, some shit that you can carry in your EDC bag in your truck or someone you could call on your phone. Um, In no way should anyone assume that Google, especially now, beginning of the internet hell it was a it was a golden treasure trove of information that was of intense immense value now obviously it's a gate kept curated psychological prison that we all are forced for purposes of livelihood or communication or what have you to engage with as a friend of mine said it's a utility it it just is To limit, you know, survival thinking to the classic scenarios is stupid. And it's, it's an oversight, and it's just fucking retarded. And instead of managing survival, we end up with credentialism, uh, the tyranny of the experts, which all leads to what we have now, um, anarcho-tyranny, absolute civilizational, social, interpersonal, interior collapse. Mass freak out and what is undeniably the unraveling of the very fucking fabric of reality. Now, this is in the book. This is what the book is about. The book is about managing the unraveling of the fabric of fucking reality. How are you going to do that? Well, I mean, if you're, if you're, gonna, ch- if you're gonna just turn to church you need you probably didn't read your good book too well because it's well understood that and this was borne out in every secular uh example that that you could find um the church itself will be corrupted and that goes for all churches you know um so what this brought me to was this idea that there's an inner church and it's a it's occurring on a psychic level and this brought me back to a whole bunch of other ideas that I have been entertaining for uh let's say like probably since 1996 or 1997 some of them of course these have been developed in literal backwaters of my mind over a long period of time circumstances of forced me to reconcile with this is how I cope. These are my coping strategies. 
analysis of kind of the best exterior resources for um, managing stress, managing trauma, survival um, at the physical, spiritual, what have you, from all of those different angles, isn't going to, you know, you can go get plenty of books that are just going to rehash, well, this is, you know, the, the sit-zen or whatever, and this is an option. This is transcendental meditation, and this is an option. Try this. Here's, you know, have you tried breath work? And you can spend the rest of your life, you know, swirling the fucking toilet, uh, hoping to get good at those things. But without an overview of what the hell you are doing and why, simply, you're just simply, you know, as they say, grasping for straws. And sometimes those straws are good and sometimes they're not. For my boys, for myself, for my wife, for my extended family and friends, that is not what I want to provide. I'm not interested in being the guy with all the tools and, um, you know, a bunch of handyman I have enough, I don't have a ton. I'm, I don't care to be that guy, but I do care to be a resource. And I notice that, you know, here's an example of your, your fucking political, you know, your market theory. Well, fill a need, you know, fill a need. What if that need is so painful to acknowledge that it's, it's more likely that your potential clients will do everything in their power to ignore the, you know, the perspective that you are providing, which, yeah, there's plenty of um, science-backed, peer-reviewed, anecdotal, whatever, for, for any of the shit you want to go to. But the reason we really go to it is, of course, as we've established on this podcast, the central nervous system tie-in to something, a, a spiritual problem, and this revolt results in the central avoidance pattern. And what I've said is that breath work leads you back to being able to identify that on a physical level. Herein entered Donald Hoffman. And, you know, sort of a 21st century um, scientistic rehash of Platonic idealism, you know, or the, the Neoplatonists, what have you. This idea that, pardon me, experience as we know it must emanate out of or be reflected through or um, you know, cast through as a shadow of some, some higher ideal, a transcendental, the solids. None of this shit really makes much sense when they, because they don't want to make sense. Here you go with the John Taylor Gatto. It's, all of the education system is designed to obscure. It's you as the student are walking in expecting a coherent display. And there was a time where you could, you could get that like in the local schoolhouse sometimes because it was demanded. If your kid comes home fucked up with all sorts of weird ideas, uh, 
farmer, uh, you know, Bjorn or John or whoever is going to march his ass down and if not whoop the shit out of that woman or not ride her ass out of town on a rail, he's going to he's going to straighten her out one way or another. It just simply didn't happen. And you could go to Harvard and you could go to Yale and coherence was obviously the thing. And this was corrupted, as the history shows, at a certain point in the 20th century. So that all of the boomers, a good portion of the silent generation, all of the rest of the generations are suffering under this and its feedback loops. So, the avoidance pattern reveals itself to me to be at the, at the interface between this transcendental world or realm and whatever the fuck it is that we are in, which, you know, it's called in orthodoxy, pejoratively, the world. We can italicize it or just call it the world, death to the world and whatnot. This is not really all that fucking helpful. You know, the expectation is based out of cultural norms that no longer exist. So it's incumbent upon you to either stand in the um, pew in the, you know, in the, in the church and pretend that you understand, fake it till you make it, berate somebody like your priest, which is just going to piss him off. Um, that's not entirely true. I mean, I think that priests vary just like mechanics vary. It's no different. Just like, you know, soldiers of fortune or special forces operators vary. They are not the same. And so that fact, which is an uncomfortable fact that nobody wants to acknowledge that, you know, everybody wants to do apologetics. Everybody wants to tie in some conspiracies. Nobody wants to acknowledge a couple of um, serious fucking issues, which is that one, we might need to acknowledge that we simply do not have any of the cultural reference points necessary to really understand the Bible. And so this places you, if you are still, if you still want to believe, into a position, you know, you need to turn to something other than language and text. Here enters Wittgenstein. Here enters Miles Hollingworth. Um, here enters, you know, again, one of my main goals in this project has been to break down this this dumb fucking 21-year-old reflex to say, oh, that's base, that's cringer, that's shit liver, that's whatever. But the Esalen society is responsible, just like the U.S. government is responsible for an enormous amount of pain and suffering and failed experiments and what have you. It is obvious that, you know, the pattern is that the fearful look for people to blame. That's all they really want. And so if you are on the Internet, on Twitter, and if you're fucking some big name or some little name, and it's just about building these barriers between this is right, this is left, this is base, this is cringe, this is commie, this is fucking, uh, what are you, fucking neocon? I mean, no, no, fascist, that's cool. Has fascism ever really been tried? Has communism, you know, the phrase? I Fucking whatever, man. Whatever. 
Um, I'm going with Camp 38 on the whole thing and fuck all your imaginary, you know, pretend. Again, it's the truth is that it's all based out of an inability and it compounded like in the social feed, feedback loops, it compounds because you have this pressure of time, you need to perform, you need to get a wife, you need to make some kids, you need to do something here pretty quick. So come up with some opinions, the best opinions, just fucking rehash them. This is McCarthy at the end of Blood Meridian. You are the bone pickers and there's a man ahead of you who is striking fire out of the fucking earth. And uh, that's me. That's who, um, yeah, you don't get any credit for that. They don't even know you are there. Which brings us back to how exactly do you shove that down, you know, some, some numb nuts uh, throat and get them to pay you 20 bucks or 25 bucks for it. We're going to find out. We'll see. But um, the act of striking fire out of the earth at this point, you know, doesn't seem, yeah, is Elon Musk doing that? I don't know. It looks like, you know, Jack Parson, that's who was doing it. And sorry, conservative fucking Christian, but he was using uh, magic to do that. And that's how you make your living now. So is that evil? It's just like, well, um, the issue that we had, you know, in the last podcast where I'm, um, there was a comment. I appreciate the comment in um, Patreon, like orthodoxy and psychedelics is a tough sell. Yeah. But I mean, that's, it's not a thing that needs to be sold. It sells itself. It simply happened. Just like the Orthodox picked up the internet, uh, just like they picked up and worked for JPL, which by his own admission, by Jack Parson admitted to summoning demons or something like that with uh, fucking L. Ron Hubbard in the desert outside of Los Angeles. Okay, that's a fact. Elon Musk is playing, is paying you know, likely hundreds of thousands of Christian salaries based on the work of JPL. Is that okay? Well, that's okay. So you can do that, but just show up on Sunday and do your fucking thing. What is coming is a reckoning. And that reckoning comes for everybody. It doesn't just simply come for them that were jerks and, you know, fucked babies or whatever. Yeah, it sure as hell comes for them. And hopefully there is, you know, some gradient to this. Uh, but I, I kind of doubt it, you know? I kind of I think that we're all going to atone for everybody's sins. Why? Well, because we all had the opportunity to walk down there and sacrifice our lives to stone to death the fucking baby raper on the side of the road, which you know in your fucking heart was the right thing to do, but all of us, including myself, made the choice towards self-preservation over, you know, what all of the, the right side rightly, correctly points out is the erosion of social lineage um, value inherent to this particular economic political setup. So don't you pay for cowardice? God favors the fucking bold, dude. How are you going to reconcile this? Well, you know, we're just going to... No, you're not. You're not going to fucking reconcile any of it, dude. And neither am I for that matter. So in preparing to have to pay for this shit, you know, abstract operator is what I have arrived at. And uh, 
subscriber support has enabled that and and friends um, and family and support have enabled that effort but I have I feel emerged from the underworld and um, you know whatever the the thing about the beta reader is he's playing a role and you as the receiver of the feedback have to know how to read that it's not simply that it comes down from on high because no offense to you beta readers who probably are listeners you know you don't just take that at face value just like you don't take anything at face fucking value it needs to be processed through an individual system of values which is what the man out front striking fire from the earth is doing so that is one particular angle on abstract operator which i will continue to share with those who are interested we're coming up on or we are passing the half hour mark so i'm going to shoot this um thing i'm going to cut to my discussion with um the up and coming the very talented john j stancliffe after that if i can pull it together you got to recognize i have just emerged from the fucking underworld i'm hydrating i'm petting my dog i'm surrounded by a fetid swamp my weapons of course i mean do you think you go to the underworld without extensive like hyper vigilant levels of weaponry both spiritual and material <laughs> absolutely you do all right so i'm gonna go do some breath work and uh manage this and i'll kick you guys over i hope you enjoy it um yeah it's a good chat thing off the top of my head i can think of is the the incident in michigan with i think it was michigan michigan or wisconsin with the governor whitmer yeah um where they had like 14 people trying to make make a plan to kidnap her but 12 of them turned out to be informants just to get like two idiots yeah um Theor like theoretically that situation was was obviously possible and a lot of conspiracy theorists had already on on twitter and stuff had um had made like pretty long posts about it and there's other incidents that i'd you know read about read about just wikipedia diving um about informants um in organizations that are set up by the federal government um so that concept had just been gestating in my head for a long time, but I hadn't really like, I hadn't really figured out any compelling characters or anything. Um, it, it wasn't for so my, my senior year, probably I was thinking about the idea and I was, I was too busy writing um, nonfiction for my history degree, obviously to spend too much time on fiction. Um, but I would say that that summer, I'll just give you like a short history of my foray into to writing fiction. I had, yeah, I had been writing fiction since I was younger. Um, a lot younger, didn't ever do anything with it. Um, really after I graduated though, I was so sick of writing nonfiction and in, in my history degree, um, not sick of history necessarily, but just, just sick of dealing with the, the Academy. It was like a kind of a detox 
And I wrote a couple of um, short stories just for, you know, these online magazines that have a really fleeting existence, um, like surfaces.cx. I wrote a, I wrote a story called a manual for the 21st century, which is sort of like a kind of a take on the screw tape letters, except it, it really disturbingly, um, deals more with like a, you know, how to tempt a person into, um, a mass shooting or something. So really, really dark way to, to start, I guess. But that was like the first, <laughs> first of my works that was, that was like fed book core. And that was kind of, I was so disturbed by the Christchurch shooting and everything going along with that, that I kind of wrote it all in one sitting just at like midnight or something. It kind of, kind of a personal exorcism, to be honest with you. I wasn't expecting it to be, to be picked up. I thought it might be clumsy and all this, but the, the guy who was editing that magazine responded really favorably to it hmm. and um, threw it up pretty much immediately. Um, and I, you know, I, I wasn't on Twitter at that point, but I was kind of like just lurking um, on the services.cx account. And it was, it got like a bunch of retweets, which was, I mean, not a bunch, like eight, you know, but it was, it was like a 2000 follower account. And I didn't know, I wasn't on Twitter. I didn't know any of these people. So it was my first like experience you know, with, with writing where, you know, people genuinely liked what I wrote and I was, I was encouraged by it. So I, I kind of kept writing over that summer. Um, and, uh, I wrote a bunch of other long form stuff, some that I haven't published. Um, not, not like novels or anything like that, but nearly like novelettes, I guess, not quite a novella, uh, not quite a novel, not quite a short story too long. Um, one I wrote called the tigress, which I'm still trying to figure out what to do with. Cause it's clearly like juvenilia, but it's also, you know, I talked to family and friends who have read it. They think it, they like remember it more than my newer stuff, which I think is more like, um, technically proficient since I've been, you know, writing a lot, uh, writing a lot more since then. Anyway. Um, so when I was, I was, Sorry, go if ahead. You don't mind. So, Tiger is more technically proficient. Is that what you said? Or uh, Fedbook is is more the top of your game? Oh yeah, Fedbook's definitely more at the top of my game. The Tigress was like my first. I was like, I'm going to write a ten thousand word, you know, drawing room sort of drama where it's these you know rich people kind of talking about their neuroses and things, so based heavily off of. I was super into. I still am into Dostoevsky, but I was like. I was reading, that was like all I was reading at the time. Gotcha. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of like a dystopian sci-fi thing. Um, but set all in like one apartment with, you know, five or six extraordinarily wealthy, um, people, uh, just talking about stuff. And, um, one of those type of stories where the, the, the wider world is sort of revealed in dialogue. Um, I don't think it's as technically proficient and it's clear. Like I said, it's clearly juvenilia at this point. Like I go back and read it and you know, I named one of the characters like Adolf Mishma, which is like right on the nose, too much on the nose. Um, kind of corny at this point. He's like a private, um, private military contractor operating out of Seattle, like mixed, um, half Japanese, half Germanic or whatever. Um, anyways, so, with Fedbook, um, I was I was working a kind of like a desk job uh, out of college for really low pay. Um, actually, as a service writer, which is where I got some of the Roger or yeah the Roger experience in Fedbook from. Okay. Uh, 
and I came up with an idea just about some uh, some friends at a school um, who sort of through I don't know a feedback loop of of uh, you know male radicalism, which can tend to happen sometimes, end up overcommitting to to some dastardly deed. And I, this this idea uh, in its original form was like much more serious than Fedbook turned out to be. And I'm glad I I never wrote that one because I it would have been too hard for me to write, and there wasn't enough like distance between you know my life and the stuff I was writing about for me to be comfortable with it. But it it was the it was the first idea in the step to Fedbook that like you've probably experienced this where you, suddenly a couple of parts just kind of click together. And, um, you just, it's like all you can think about for, you know, a couple of weeks at a time and you start like jotting little things out, um, just yeah. trying to get the, the seeds on, on paper. So I had that going on. Um, I was still writing other things, uh, other short stories and, I, you know, brief foray into poetry, which I've like, I've published some poems under a different name on like online magazines and stuff. I don't know if I'll ever reclaim them because they're so bad, but uh, I've I've since left poetry behind. Prose is definitely my forte. Um, but yeah, I I had written the beginning of Fedbook, uh, the stuff with the APRA in the beginning where he's running with these, uh, you know, guys that are doing psychedelics in the desert, pretending to be you know Pueblo Indians. Um. I had written that just kind of as like an experiment and I didn't know if it was going to go anywhere. That's where, you know, just the idea of the, you know, rental informants union and this kind of, uh, I don't know, fantastical vision of the, of the American West and like in the future or something, but it did, it kind of, it didn't necessarily stand alone. It was just like floating there 1700 words on my computer that I didn't know what to do with. But after I came up with this other idea of these, these friends um, sort of getting sucked into sucked into like nihilist radicalism. Um, I kind of just decided I'm going to put the two of these together, see where that takes me. And I like the big aha moment was like, you can perfectly not perfectly, but you can meld the male friendship thing that I was trying to work out with this other idea I had with the, the whole informant thing and make perhaps make a better, make a more profound point with both of them um, doing so. Yeah. And then, sense. yeah, that's when, I'm, yeah, that's when I, that's when I started writing like full swing. I, I, I was unemployed at the time. So I was doing, I don't know, like five or 6,000 words a week at the peak um, going, going really hard on it. A lot of those words I ended up deleting Um but it was really necessary for me just to get, so I had, I'd only written short stories up to that point. And I don't know, writing's kind of like exercising. It's not exactly the same because you can definitely, I think with exercise, you can continually like build muscle and get stronger and you can continually improve your cardio and you can definitely like plateau and stuff um, with exercise, but it feels mm-hmm. different than writing. Cause I think it's it's more demoralizing, I think, with writing when you just have weeks where you're continuously writing trash or, like, you're just sitting there and nothing but, like, a diary entry comes out, you know, for weeks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough. 
yeah, it's a, it, it's a little different. So I, I had definitely had periods writing it where I was like insane level of productivity followed by two months of like, am I ever going to touch this again? You know? Um, and there's some level of just discipline, like just, you know, hammer the keys, see what happens was required to finish it. But I think the idea at a certain point was firm enough in my brain that I felt like I had to, had to finish writing it. Um, and a lot of stuff kind of came later. It was, um, sort of running at the same time as my, my, um, my conversion to orthodoxy, just learning, learning about the concept of principalities and powers. And I, I don't know, to me, I was, this was something I was really worried if, if anybody who read it was going to understand, but I was like, the concept of, of spiritual forces kind of using material forces and material wills um, and a sort of never ending chain, sort of like you can have like an in, infinitely nested informant within a terrorist cell, within a terrorist cell, within a federal organization kind of deal. I felt like they were, they were analogous to some extent. So I was like, I, I wanted to work that in there. And that, that, that's what gives, in my opinion, um, I think that's the only thing that makes Elijah compelling because otherwise he's just like Elijah or Constantine for that matter. They're otherwise they're just kind of, uh, you know, the unstoppable villain, you know, from another dimension, like Anton Sugar or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was to me the, um, I think the main, the main takeaway, you know, as a reader was that idea. So it seems to me that sometimes, like you're saying, the writing process, you, I am, I mean, you know, it probably changes for everybody, but uh, sometimes my experience has been that things come out in these disjointed spurts and then it's as if your subconscious is working you know, full time, twenty four seven in the background, and um, just waiting for us. You know, the like the living awareness to kind of uh, do the work or, or put it down on paper, and then eventually, like, wake up to see what um, where the thread is that hold. You know, the coherence that holds it together. And so, it's interesting if I'm understanding you correctly that the because I didn't finish this thought, but I mean, the main takeaway for me was this concept that you just touched on where, because I've never seen anything quite like that. I mean, I've read, you know, C.S. Lewis and tons and tons of Orthodox stuff, and I've pondered it a fair bit, but I don't think I it had ever, um, I don't think that I've ever seen it constructed the way that you did in terms of, the powers and principalities having, uh, cause we, we, you know, in conspiracy culture, or online culture in general, we, we do have this idea that there's these cabals and maybe they do or do not have like access to, um, you know, occult forces or supernatural type forces. Um, but it, you know, and there's, there's plenty of speculation, but 
what they what like the organizational structure of that would be behind the scenes and then the fact that if i understood what you presented correctly that um it's sort of as if we're just instantiated at one certain point of it and uh you know it may or may not go much 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 higher and that was uh you left it you know taste it was uh, tastefully done in terms of which you know may be the only way that you could honestly approach it. I mean, if if you tried to convince me that you knew you know the ins and outs of every single uh, level of that hierarchy, I, you know, fuck, maybe you would have pulled it off. But um, the way you left it, you know, was 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 excellent, and that was the main takeaway for me. So I guess long way around to ask was that last is that one of those last pieces that came to you where you sort of looked at what you had and you realized that it uh you you know it either was meant to tie in that way or you had the opportunity to tie it in that way does that make sense yeah 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 so i think the i i always had this idea of like a um the the triumvirate being um baldwin who's the useful idiot then constantine who's Definitely less of a useful idiot, extremely competent, but just kind of outmaneuvered. And then I had this Elijah character and the names are kind of, you know, Constantine and Elijah definitely like I was trying, I was thinking of like, you know, forerunners of the Antichrist or like executors of the Antichrist thematically or like executors of a type of the Antichrist in, in terms of, you know, Elijah's syndicate, um, or whatever, but Elijah was the hardest piece for me to like puzzle together. Um, I didn't know exactly what he was going to look like, you know, or what he was going to be doing. I just knew that he was there. I, I in the first part of the book, in the first chapter, where um, soldier mentions their names to the uh, the rental informants union, like regional manager, um, just as an example that it's a uh, it's a violent cell that he's operating in and thus a breach yeah. of contract. He talks about them in like kind of a foreboding way. And I like, I just had the faintest glimmer of an idea of what that would be at the time when I was writing that. But like you said, exactly like you said, it's so it's it at this point, I'm pretty much convinced it's supernatural. Like how your subconscious works in the background, just kind of piecing things together when you don't even realize it. Cause when I figured out what Elijah was going to be doing, it was like, it was totally random. I showed up to work, you know, at like 8 a.m. someday, I sat in my car for like 10 extra minutes just to write a flurry of notes down about something that had just popped into my head about what Elijah was and what the point of them all being there was. Um, essentially, yeah, and I, I won't, I won't like, I won't spoil the whole thing, but um, I don't know, just it, the. Uh, I think I had read about like Lloyd's of London or something, which is kind of what the the syndicate is loosely based off of the giant reinsurance marketplace in, in the city of London. Yes. Um, which is an extremely like kooky ind- industry. And I felt like it was a, a decent enough stand in for, I mean, it's, it's loosely like it's market forces that they're responding to. Like there is a market there, but at the same time, um, they're dealing with so many conglomerated forces like across the world at once that at some point it's like, it's not even a market anymore. It's just a, 
it's some disembodied entity that they're responsible to ensure like continues to exist. And that's kind of what I wanted Elijah as like the incarnation of, of that, of that will, like something slightly beyond the market, slightly above hell, definitely under heaven. Um, but something that acts on people and produces these strange outcomes, which in the real world, you know, like with the, the Las Vegas shooting, for example, we only see like the terrifying aftermath of, and like the, the missing pieces that don't fit together. I don't, I hope that makes sense. I, I feel like I'm rambling. No, no, to me, it makes perfect sense. If the audience doesn't get it, fuck them. Um, but for, <laughs> but for the sake of the audience, um, we're 15 minutes in. So I'll say a few things like one of the, there's some, I mean, more than some, there's plenty of like genuinely laugh out loud moments in fed book. And the first that, and the one that I recall now is, um, you know, towards the beginning, I may have mentioned this to you um, in text, but when when the, the original recruitment, it, the story of it is sort of being told that a uh, soldier is just at his apartment and he's essentially being, you know, you, I don't, I mean, it is really, it's the way, the way it is, uh, organized and everything is just hilarious because you've essentially taken this like um group of uh, humanities majors with really nothing to do um but and again i i want i shouldn't even try and uh recreate the hilarity but for the audience it's like i think what i took away from fedbook was that you there was this enormous cosmological structure to it. Um, but it's told almost in, and it's told in, in several different ways. You have a variety of modes that you go into. Um, but it's not always that easy for anybody to pull off, um, absurd, like absurdity in general and hilarious, you know? So especially in something um, that switches gears the way the book does between, you know, like genuine, uh, terror or at least like existential terror at points and, and action and, you know, a variety of other modes that you've got to handle on. So that was just for the audience. Uh, you know, don't be, don't be put off by the, the highfalutin aspect of it. It's, it's down to earth as well. So well yeah. done, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Most, most of what I've just said is like entirely <laughs> for the audience. Yeah. Most of what I've just said is entirely exegetical. It's not like, um, it's not written in that manner. Thank God. Cause I'm not very good about at speaking about it. It's, it's, it's one of those things that you can only really tell in a novel, like over the course of 370 pages, it's very difficult to like wrap up into, you know, two minutes of me like speaking about it. That's kind of why I wrote the book, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So I wasn't trying to put you on the spot, but um, I was just curious about, you know, how long it took you and did you have, pardon me, you know, um, training because it's, it, it adheres to something pretty close to, you know, a classical um, structure and it definitely delivers, you know, you've uh, not to give away the goods, but I think the audience sometimes like this stuff is like, you know, you've, 
you've woven the end into the beginning, which isn't always apparent, you know, to first time novelists, that's something you got to do. Um, and right. it, it, you know, so what did you, did you just read a ton of novels and absorb it? Or did you like, uh, read craft books or take classes? How did you approach the actual construction of it? Um, well, for the first thing, for the, the ending, um, and also speaking sort of to the absurdity and hilarity mixed with like terror, I guess, my biggest influence in that regard, in, in those three regards, the ending and kind of the mingling of, of themes and tones is Wuthering Heights. Um, I hmm. think that book probably has the best ending of any novel that I've read. That's my opinion. And, you know, I'm not like the most well-read person in, in the world. So there's probably a, you know, there's, there's probably another book out there that I'll read someday that might be, might be better, but that one stuck with me just because it's such a, uh, all the characters are so mean spirited toward one another. And this family is completely destroyed by the, yeah. uh, you know, hostile, hostile influence of Heathcliff, but somehow at the end, um, it's wrapped together perfectly where the families are, you know, because of the death of Heathcliff and his, you know, even even Heathcliff's death, he's the villain, but that's like that's his reunion with Catherine as well. So it resolves it for him. And then when he passes, the uh, the estate is passed to to Harrison or Harriton. And the um, the Lintons and the Earnshaws are uh, they're reunited finally. The Wuthering Heights is like restored to tranquility, despite this whole you know hundreds of pages of just abject like misery and and high romance and you know words that are so hostile and mean that they cause like other characters to get sick and die from from them um i was i was very inspired by that and i was like if you're writing a novel you you know even if it's if it's bleak like wuthering heights is and um extremely passion impassioned you can't just you can't just leave it off like kind of kind of hanging like you know, like you said, I think a lot of we were speaking about Twitter Twitter writers earlier. It it happens so often where, um, the narrative and story element is kind of a shoe just to show off, like uh, you know, prose. And there's this there's this sort of like wistful. Um, maybe I, I would characterize it almost as millennial. I don't, I don't really know. I'm probably reaching outside my grasp trying to describe it to certain generations, but it's like very common for a story to be well-written and you'll enjoy reading it, um, a novel. And it has like some semblance of a story, but really it's just a slice of life. And then it just ends somewhere along the way. And I really didn't want fed book to be like that. Cause all the books that I've read that I enjoy, you know, they wrap up very nicely and they have a satisfying ending. Um, even even if that ending is sort of well, a bad ending is one thing. I don't want to say even if it's unsatisfying. It's good to have a satisfying ending, and that's what I that's what I wanted to try and accomplish. And um, that's part of the reason the, the the traveler segment is in there. That was that was sort of a late addition. Um, not not like right at the end of the book, but I was about midway through, and I, I realized like it needed it needed something to tie, tie everything together. Like it needed another, um, it needed another narrative frame, which is another thing I borrowed from Wuthering Heights. Cause, uh, in that book, you know, the, um, I can't remember the, the guy's name, the, 
he's not really the protagonist, but it's the guy that the book starts out following. He, he finds like Catherine's journal and he's like reading what she wrote in the margins. And that's like the narrative frame for, you know, 50 pages. And then it'll return and it'll go to like someone's letter and then it'll be a story told by one of the servants. I really, I really enjoy that style of writing. And again, like federal informants within terrorist cells, you know, within principalities and powers, I felt like having different narrative modes nested within one another also sort of fit that, that general recursive theme that I was trying to go for. Um, yeah, absolutely. But so yeah, I wanted, did, I wanted it to have a, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask, did you just, cause you just kind of analyzed um, novels that you liked and then essentially learn from them. I mean, at some point in history, because I'm, I'm taking it from the point of view that most people today who try and write novels either go to an MFA program or maybe they just slap something off and it, it happens to work. But it sounds like maybe you are, you know, some combination of natural talent and um, like... You are you are picking certain objects from which to 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 sort of take your bearings. Is that right? Yeah, def- I mean, I I like the idea that I have natural talent. I hope that's true. Um, but yeah, definitely. I I mean, and being a, I did like, I did get a bachelor's degree, and um, I studied at a pretty high level. Uh, so I can't. I I trained writing, and I trained you know picking out things from from texts and, you know, critical thinking and all, all that jargon. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the art that I really enjoy, I, I just look at the things that I think are, are done well in them. And then I try to, um, I kind of steal them to be honest with you. Um, you know, stuff like the frame narration. I was like, I love that. I'm just going to, I'm going to throw that in my book. I want it to be there. And there is a couple, like this might be even hard to believe, but I mean, Fedbook actually had another layer of narrative frame at one point that I took out <laughs> at the end. Cause I was like, this is, this is too much. There was like an epistolary component to it. I was like, people don't even write letters. This is just going to be needlessly confusing. I, I took it out. Um, hmm. But yeah. Well, and I, sorry, uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to, you, you go ahead. Um, but I, yeah, I had other, other influences as well that, um, like, do you ever read Philip K. Dick? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I read a, a scanner darkly. Like I think a scanner darkly was the, the initial, initial impetus for that first sec, that first chapter of the book. I was like, man, that was so good. That was so cool. Like, you know, an informant, like a, yeah, a, yeah. a narcotics agent who like, forgets that he's a narcotics agent, you know, due yeah. to the debilitating effect of this drug. So I, I, you know, I took a bunch from that, uh, in terms of, in terms of influence and, um, applied my own spin to it. And I've, I've enjoyed Philip K. Dick for a long time. I mean, he's a, he's a mastermind, a little, a little kooky, like as I get to learn more about him, um, but extremely talented, um, no and then question. Dostoevsky, of course, mm-hmm. uh, the book that most influ- influenced me in that regard was, uh, was demons or the possessed it's like rendered as both. I don't know which I like more. I think, I think the possessed, cause that seems more accurate. 
Yeah. Yeah. Philip K. Dick. And it one one way that I um I think I tried to conceptualize you as I was reading it was uh, but you avoided him, which is you know, is good in my opinion. Cause one absurdist sort of modern writer is uh that comes to mind is Tom Robbins. Hmm. Um he he's good. I mean he's you know, it's it's okay, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, it, the surprising thing to me is like you you've created this you know, let's face it, um it's a novel that's, you know, similar to to what I do, right? It's like it's niche and it's not it's not as if um you're writing to gain access to the mainstream and make a bunch of money. It's coming from a different, uh, it's originating out of a different set of intentions for you. And um, mm-hmm. in my opinion, you know, I mean, we're just talking about, you know, the corruption, uh, like the total corruption of uh, modernity at that point. But that's the, uh, the gate, the gate ringer. I apologize the audience but um <laughs> uh what was i trying to say about you know tom robbins is somebody who like manages absurdity pretty well but in my opinion when it comes down to some substance like some deep um cosmological theological existential types of issues and questions it's it's largely just going to be handled and pan like sort of you know panned off with uh, or, or in in some type of folksy folksy way, which is fine. You know, if people like that, that's but that's definitely not what you've what you've gone. For. You know, there's an ambition that's that's reflected. That's uh, again um, very admirable. Um, certainly, yeah. Like, thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, you're you're the inspiration that I haven't read Wuthering Heights for like it's been 25 years, but I do remember it. And of course, I mean, Philip K. Dick is a master. And then, what do you say about Dostoevsky? I mean, but you did you kind of merged. I can see pretty clearly um, Philip K. Dick meeting Dostoevsky, you know, but in a in a more modern context. Maybe Philip K. Dick was aware of like the incestuous uh, internecine and nested, you know, qualities of um, the intelligence game, the, the, whatever you call them, like security services game. But uh, I don't think, right. that, you know, that he, um, he ever took it in the same, cause so there's maybe this is a good way to segue too, because, you know, I'm, we are both, um, orthodox characters ourselves and so there was um, there's a number of places where you know and I remember too because we talked offline that you were writing this at the same period of time that you were undergoing I, I presume a process of catechism mm-hmm. so I remember when I was doing this that I too was like I mean I was reading uh, you know say Maximus the Confessor and um, all of them, you know, Timothy Ware jumping all around trying to get, uh, trying to take the processes as seriously as they could. And so there, there's, 
evidence, I think, but correct me if I'm wrong, of your own, you know, processing of of theology, um, and it, it's influencing Fed book. Is that right? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely does does play into there. Um, obviously, in the the character of character of Roger, who right. I was trying to portray as kind of like a naive idiot Christian who, um, you know, doesn't go to church. I mean, like it's one of those things where, Oh, you know, don't, don't read the author in here cause it's fiction, but you kind of like, you kind of wink at him while you say that. Cause there's definitely some, some elements of my own like spiritual journey in, in Roger. Um, obviously not the same person at all. Um, kind of, I just kind of caricatured, myself at a certain point in, in my life um, for his character. Definitely a reader. Um, definitely talkative. Did you ever read The Pilgrim's Progress? Um, I'm not sure if I have. I think if, I think if I did, it was during college. So it's been quite some time. Yeah, I, I only, I've only read it once and it was, it was a couple years ago. But the... Uh, there's a character in there that Christian, the the main character, kind of meets along the way, whose name is his his character name is Talkative, and he kind of spends the entire time walking with Christian, just arguing about theology with him, and you know what true Christianity is, and yeah, you know who who God is, and things like that. But he doesn't he doesn't participate in any of the um, the physical struggles that Christian gets into along the way, and he at some point he falls like far behind Christian, and I think he gets he gets lost in some swamp, um, which I can't remember the, the name, but all the locations are very, very aptly titled in that book. And the, a tale from the city of destruction, the city of destruction is where uh, Christian comes from in the pilgrim's progress. So I took that too, just cause it kind of as like a aesthetic flair, I guess. Yeah. That's the subtitle of fed book, right? Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. I just thought it sounded cool, but, um, the, uh, I, I don't think I could point you to specific like people that are, you know, saints that I was reading. I just know I was, I was, I was reading snatches and, 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 and in piecemeal, um, Philip Sherrard kind of comes to mind because he's, uh, I was right out of college for a lot of the philosophical like germinations, uh, happening in my head at that time. And he wrote a book called The Rape of Man and Nature and um, Human yeah. Im- Human Image, World Image, which I've read both of those. I don't know how influential he was to me. I, I think I studied like the history of science. Um, and so he's like, he's about as polemical towards the modern scientific mind as you can probably get within a Christian tradition. <laughs> Like, you know, he titles a book called The Rape of Man and Nature, just the whole thing, just railing against, you know, from Aristotle forward, the, the development of um, the scientific ethos. Yep. Um, Maybe that's what I'm sorry, picking up on. Well, I was going to say, I've read uh, a fair bit of Sherard too. Um, and maybe that's what I was picking up on. Because he does have, like... I've recommended him to other people and I'm not sure that they've, that they've picked up on what he is putting down, but um, yeah, he has a, like a particular 
way of kind of extrapolating on the, the basics of or- orthodoxy. Um, that's mm-hmm. brilliant. Yeah, he's one of my favorites, actually. Yeah, it was, he's like, it's so refreshing to read. I don't know like how correct he is on a bunch of different things at this point. But regardless, it was so refreshing to read after coming out of the history program that I was in because he he actually he has like a thesis to tell he has a thesis that he defends like arguing a through line from you know ancient writers all the way to modernity like this is how it, it it's so bold to say like from Aristotle to Descartes to like you know Darwin and then Einstein there's like this through line coming from the history of science because in the history of science, it's uh, the worldview is like it's so nihilistic. It's um, it's it's Darwinian in the sense that um, the the belief of the academy is pretty much that certain ideas are fit for a certain time and environment, and that's the only reason that they've survived. Whereas Sherard is basically arguing that there's like been at least a subconscious project on earth to completely divorce man's image of himself from the divine to yeah to divorce man's image to divorce man's divine image from himself and replace it with this you know natural image which is kind of i guess the most direct part where i address that in the book is the the campfire conversation where they're you know talking (laughs) talking about how the uh their professors, you know, like, you know, they only, they see God or they see man as an animal and that God is dead. And so God is, if man is made in God's image, then God is a dead ape basically. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Which is maybe too on the nose. I was kind of like, I was kind of worried when I was writing this because you read so much stuff. That's like a, a manifesto. I wanted it to try and sound like this is what the characters believe, but yeah. Yeah, well it's believable. See, I don't think that um one of the reasons that your you know, your writing is interesting to me is that we are from I'm mean, I'm probably two generations, if we consider a generation to be ten years, beyond you. And so to think that, you know, I could have I like I just wouldn't have been nearly as articulate or literate perhaps with um, at, at the same breadth at, at your age, there's no way that I, you know, um, we would have had some of the same influences, but, um, and this is to say that it's, it was believable or, you know, not that we need to make every novel, every single aspect of a novel like realistic or believable at all. But um mm-hmm. From my point of view and reading it, I can see how a conversation like that would actually um, would play out or could play out, you know. So even if even if it is maybe for some people hitting, as you say, you know, too much on the nose um, for a couple of guys, you know, of your generation, your generation is just far more informed due basically, you know, entirely to the Internet. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah, but trust me on this, like the nineties were pretty awesome in many ways and you know, the depth and the stakes and all of the basic realities were, 
were the case then as they are now, but the but like, the like um, the the amount of references and the, like a lot of the verbal dexterity, I don't think was, you know, maybe this is a case where I'm I'm just now sort of isolated to the internet to some degree myself. But um, anyway, that's just to say, yeah, uh, you know. I look back at everything I do. I'm sure everybody does when you do and say, man, maybe I could have changed this or that. But, you know, maybe 20 years from now, you you will be at a whole other a whole other place and you'll be happy with it nonetheless. I don't know. Yeah, I'm definitely still still proud of it. There's sometimes, though, I mean, I remember I sent a screenshot to one of my friends and I was like, oh, should I have edited that out, you know? this this kind of this line of dialogue is that necessary there but yeah at some point you just have to have to kind of give it up um one of my friends from twitter it said that it's he he's like yeah you'll you'll look back on this as juvenilia <laughs> so <laughs> i i think it's still good and i'm definitely proud of it i stand by it um all the way it's yeah, it's, it's interesting like you say cuz there was a there was a point in my life where everything i wrote it was like it didn't survive 6 months in my head, I was like, I go back and read it and be like, Oh my, did I really write that? What was I thinking? That's so stupid. You know, but I passed that point now and now it's, now it's more developmental rather than you're constantly planting and then destroying the field and replanting and then destroying the field. Now it's like, I can, I can have some, a crop rotation for once. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I would agree with your friend. I don't know. Maybe he's more, um, you know, whatever. He's got some other different point of view than I do. But um, no, I wouldn't, you know, I, I definitely would not in any way subscribe or, you know, fed book to Juvenalia. Because as you just said, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of for you to decide, uh, actually. You know, you get to, right. uh, as time progresses, who knows what you want to do. Maybe Fedbook actually gets tucked in as, you know, something that some other character in the future that you haven't even invented or met yet wrote. You know, it's a universe. That's like one of the nice things I like about novels is that um, it's it's extensively flexible, you know. Right, Yeah. If that makes sense. I agree. No, it totally does. Well, speaking of, you know, um, Twitter and friends and all these things, another, you know, another thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, not to, you know, I don't think either one of us cares to waste our time, um, on like critiques of social media or, or what have you, but, Given that um, some of your book, it sounds like, you know, was influenced from that, that milieu, I am interested. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you are in a, you know, a different generation than I am. I didn't, I didn't grow up with social media. Um, I don't think I'll ever, like, uh, integrate it into my life. But I, I, I'd be curious to know what your experience was, you know, coming of age, let's say. And what are your thoughts on it now as far as will it last? You know, do you have, or I guess, I guess what I'm aiming for is 
your theory of uh, of media, you know, and you can do with that whatever you want. But somebody who would write a novel at, you know, I'm you're in your mid twenties or something like that, and yeah. um, and say, well, come what may, um, is an exceptional creature today. 